real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So today is November 19th, 2019. And yesterday it was announced that uh, IG, well, the Inspector General, um, Michael Horowitz, will be testifying um, on December 11th to discuss his findings in his report. This means that the report will be released before December 11th, 2019. So that's interesting. It can drop any day between now and then. So today I'm going to kind of walk you through an article that should be published soon in regards to my findings uh, about election fraud. And I'm going to tell you now, before I even start talking about it uh, in the second hour, um, I'm going to tell you now I was extremely pissed. I was upset because, you know, I'm, you know, a mathematical, you know, aficionado, right? I love math. I'm a math nerd. I love patterns. I love algorithms, but I am in no way, shape or form what you would consider a hacker, uh, you know, a sophisticated coder or a cryptographer. Uh, even though I have a little bit of cryptography training from the U S Navy, not enough to warrant me to, uh, state that I am a cryptographer yet. I found myself this past week studying pulling out article scholarly articles by people that you know eat breathe and sleep code to understand the patterns i was seeing on the front end meaning why are the votes distributed and i like i'm really good at recognizing patterns i mean this is an identifiable superpower that i had you know that the school system in new york discovered when i was merely 5 years old and in kindergarten and hence put me through like those like you know special smart kid programs um that is just my superpower patterns hence why i have the affinity for languages uh you know cuz language is also uh patterns Yet you would think Chinese that is mathematically based, I'm struggling (laughs) on learning, which is like, uh, but anyway, the bottom line is our elections have been fixed from as far as I could see since 2010 and fixed in a sense that we can't prove they're not being fixed, but we can't prove they are being fixed. So basically blind trust. And I'll get into that in the second hour. Now, in this, you know, first hour, I want to just touch upon topics. Um, you know, everyone's talking about Vinman. Now, new theories. Oh, you know, it was Vinman and Sierra Mella, and it was this. And I'm like, I'm upset because everyone's like trying to make this Eric Sierra Mella a whistleblower when, you know, I've been saying he's not. Um, everyone's just like, uh, we got that name, so we got to run with it. So we need to stick him somewhere so we can find this relationship. When if you listen to my show from the day and while I was on air, this guy was just trotting to supposedly the basement to testify. I told you exactly who he is. So I'm going to start with that and read a thread from Lieutenant Commander Hickman. Now, I've actually seen Hickman twice in my life because we worked around the same circles, right? But never interacted. 
I have to admit that I have seen Vinman in what you would um, consider like a special um Special missions, uh, training, uh, you know, that's usually done in places like Camp Lejeune and stuff like that, right? But there are like satellite, um, classes that are done, you know, where, you know, it's for localization, uh, cultural acclimation and explaining with, uh, countries that you work with, um, you know, to explain like a mission, right? So it's like a class. Um, it's kind of like they have the specialists. Like for me, if I were ever teaching a class like this, it would be a bunch of like, uh, government employees, intelligence officers, uh, military, non-military contractors, vendors, you name it all in a room. And then I would have to sit there and tell them, listen, man, we're going into this country. Uh, this is their, like, I'm just going to simplify this. Like this is how, you greet people. This is like the mannerisms, um, in order to achieve goal X, Y, Z. Here's me as a specialist of understanding this culture, the nuance, the language and the contacts and the targets or whatever, how you maneuver. Just, just so you understand, this is all hypothetical. So today I come across, um, a thread done by Lieutenant Commander Hickman. And I'm going to read this thread to you because if you revisit my live show, I told you exactly what he said without saying I had firsthand knowledge because it's evident that this is who Vinman really is. So he starts with, I know Lieutenant Commander um, Alex Vinman or Lieutenant Colonel whatever um, from a combined U.S.-Russian exercise called Atlas Vision 12 in uh, Grafenar, Germany. Uh, he worked with uh, the Russian embassy, and I was assigned to the joint um, multinational uh, ta- training command, also called Special Missions Training uh, Command 2, uh, with the you know the European you know U.S. Army Europe. He worked um, coordination with the Russian 15th Peacekeeping Brigade, and I was in charge of all the simulation plannings, as well as assisting the U.S. Army Europe team uh, lead planner as a senior military planner. So, you know, like planning how you roll out whatever it is you're doing. Uh, the following account of Vinman's words and actions are completely accurate to the best of my recollection and have been corroborated by others. Now, now, I can say I can corroborate some of these phrases because I've witnessed this. So we interacted, he said, on several different occasions throughout the planning cycle, but it was during the actual execution of the exercise that we had an issue relevant to his recent testimony. As stated earlier, Atlas Vision 12 was conducted at the you know Joint, ta- uh, joint Missions Training Command uh, in the VBS-2 Virtual Battle Simulations 2 classrooms for simulation. Vinman, who was a major at the time, was sitting in one of the classrooms um, talking to the U.S. and Russian sh- soldiers, as well as the young officers and government servant employees about America, Russia, and Obama. He was apologetic of American culture, laughed about Americans not being educated or worldly, and really talked up Obama and globalism to the point of uncomfortable. Uh, 
Now, one thing I told you is, is that he believes he is above all his other soldiers. Remember? And I also said he has deeply embedded roots in his Ukrainian and Russian, you know, um, culture because of the way he came over here and how he was raised. I told you that. So this kind of behavior is expected. This is why I go back to who, who the heck is in charge of hiring these people in our intelligence and military community, right? This is why I'm having a problem with the way we hire people because this is predictable. Any migrant coming from any country that, you know, leaves and is able to settle here, not, you know, even refugee wise. Well, unless they were actually persecuted. Okay. So there's fake refugees, those that, you know, um, are picked and brought over here so that the state and federal government, um, you know, entities or VOLAGs, volunteer, you know, non-profit but for-profit entities pick. We have people that are really escaping hardship, like, yo, my husband whistleblowed and he was beheaded and I need help. Those people, more than likely not going to say stuff like this, you know, because I've been in the position and I, and I, and I'm pretty transparent on it. And that we're kept in the dark, um, that our culture, um, you know, is different because we're so young as a nation. Um, that doesn't mean that we aren't awesome. And so what he was doing is laughing about how crappy Americans are and how stupid they are. And we do look really stupid to other people only because we go, we go off what we say. And that is a wrong thing to do, especially when you're with another wearing the uniform of the one you're mocking. Uh, this indicates where your alliance and allegiance, I would say, stands. Now, I said that this was a problem, right? And here we have someone corroborating those statements I made a while back when he first secretly testified. So he said, he continues to say, he would speak with the Russian soldiers and laugh at the expense of U.S. personnel. It was so uncomfortable and unprofessional that one of the government servant employees came and told me everything above. I walked over and sat within an earshot of Vinman, and sure enough, all was confirmed. One comment truly struck me as odd, and it was with respect to America's falsely thinking that they're exceptional. When he said... He, Obama, is working on that now, and he said with a snide, I know a secret, uh, look on his face. I honestly don't know what it meant. It just sounded like an odd thing to say. Regardless, after hearing him bash America a few times in front of subordinates, Russian and government service employees, as well as hearing an earful about globalization, Obama's plan, etc., I had enough. I tapped him on the shoulder and asked him to step outside. At that point, I verbally reprimanded him for his action, and I'll leave it at that, so as not to be unprofessional myself. The bottom line is, is that Vinman was a partisan Democrat, at least as far back as 2012. So much so, junior officers and soldiers felt uncomfortable around him. This is not your professional field-grade officer who was the character and integrity to do the right thing. Don't let the uniform fool you. He is a political activist in uniform. I pray our nation will drop this hate, vitriol, and division and unite as our founding fathers intended. I need to make a slight correction on my statement. It was actually Atlas Vision 13 when the incidents occurred. 
I was thrown off as the year Russia invaded Crimea. Also, I was promoted to chief regional joint combined exercises branch of the U.S. Uh, you know, U.S. Um, Army Europe, right? Over many exercises. This is coming from an awesome guy, you know, who served his nation. He's retired now and he's telling you what he observed. I can tell you in a hallway, same thing, but Ukrainian counterparts. And this is way before anything happened in Crimea. This, this I'm telling you, like I, you know, this guy has loyalties not to the United States, but to this globalization plan in which it's the destruction of the United States, right? Because the United States stands alone. The United States is the only nation on this planet that affords its citizens the right to vote and have a voice. Uh, we are the only nation uh, on the planet that believes in the innate right to freedom. Of course, every other nation wants to destroy us. Why? Because by destroying us, they destroy a threat. They dis- Other leaders are allowed to destroy this threat of notion of freedom that they don't want their people to know about. So it is important for us to understand this. The people that are in the highest positions within our government had a plan that Vinman was speaking to. It was a plan that was supposed to roll out with Hillary Clinton that failed because she did not win. And this is because their uh, process that was in place in respects to uh, fixing the vote did not account for the turnout that happened. Now, one thing in his testimony that he said, which was bizarre, first of all, he corrected Nunes, it's Lieutenant Colonel. It's like, oh my gosh, somebody smack him. Like, if I was there, seriously, I'd probably be arrested. You'd see a pack of papers flying across, being like, oh my gosh, disgusting. Um, But he said, he said that and corrected Nunes, which was horrific, you know, just to pose Dude, do you know who you're talking to? Like, you have no idea. I can crush you. You have no idea what I do. Watch me. That was the tone that he had. Same tone Strzok has. Same tone Comey has. And, by the way, I can tell you that I'm really onto something right now. I think I found an alternative plan that Comey and Mueller have put in place to usurp. Has nothing to do with... um uh, say it with, uh, the impeachment process now. Um, but you will be seeing that come to fruition. I can't believe I stumbled upon this. I'm still trying to find the angle though. Um, I'll just mention that. Now, his statement that was truly bizarre is, it is improper for the president of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. First of all, When it comes to criminal actions and the mutual defense agreement and mutual crime investigation agreement that we have with the Ukraine, it is actually written and signed by both entities that that is the way they operate. Okay? 
So that is, in fact, something allowable. So if I am, you know, um, a, a congressperson and I'm in France and I'm getting money and I'm lining my pockets and then I'm doing deals I, as a quasi official of the United States, um, my government has every right to demand that France conduct an investigation of my behavior in France. How dare he say that? And political opponent really, like Joe Schmoes, really um, <laughs> an opponent, please. So I wanted to point that out, but I also wanted to, um, you know, play that clip just so you can hear how disgusting it is when he corrected Nunes. Take a listen. Mr. Vindman, you testified in your deposition that you did not know the whistleblower. Uh, Ranking member, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, please. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, you testified. My gosh, right? How, how, oh, and he turned up in uniform. It's disgusting. This parading around. And you know, this supposed witness is like, nobody cares. Like, nobody cares what you have to say. Nobody cares. I can tell you this guy is a clown, and we have thousands of these kind of clowns throughout our military and intelligence and FBI that we've hired and supposedly, oh, yeah, you know, they're an asset because, you know, they migrated from this country, and they were immigrants and this and that. No, their allegiance is somewhere else. And I said, it's 2019. Why aren't we using artificial intelligence to determine how there's a simple algorithm you can put in place running the profiles of the people that are entering into federal work that are way better than just saying, let me check your background, uh, your criminal background and your credit, and then I can determine if you're good. That's BS. That tells you absolutely nothing. It can tell you uh, you know, that the kid was stupid and smoked weed and had a car accident or was a reckless driver or went out to a party, got super, you know, drunk at the age of 25 and started a fight. That doesn't tell you the integrity of a person. Everyone's been in a position where things just went pear shape because we're people and we make mistakes. Um, that shouldn't exclude someone. What they need to do is find a way to run a good algorithm. Like, you know, I could say it all I want, but you can run a very good thorough algorithm that can, you know, um, quantify the loyalty of the person that you're taking on because people that are entering the service now that are 40 or, you know, service and I mean public service in general uh, or 30 have a, a reliable footprint online. Right. Um, to be able to um, identify, uh, you know, where their loyalties would lie or um, how much of a risk they would be to betray their country or betray the trust that's vested in them. Right. So um, the young ones, even better, because they've been on it since like 10. Right? So people that are going to be joining in to public service later, way easier to suss out, way easier, way, way easier. Right. So they would be able to suss it out. Like, for example, um, <clears throat> if by going standards. Right. I remember, um, you know, when my credit had taken a really big hit, if someone was to question uh, my allegiance because of that, that would be dumb because obviously for so many years I have 
a lot of private identifying information that I, that could have made me rich. People that are dead, people that are dying, whatever. Names, dates of birth, the whole nine yards, access to everything, but never misused it. Even when I was in distress while I was going through the College of Medicine in Kentucky. I never used it. So obviously not being bought. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Uh, this is just an example, not saying like specific. So we can find the right people in position. And what you can see now is people like Ivanovich, who's not even an American. She was born in Canada. Okay. Are in positions where they have betrayed our trust as people. They have been vested with trust and taken advantage of it. This is very important. Okay. Um, very, very important. Hmm? Okay. We're talking about the people that are testifying. Uh, you know, the majority of them aren't even actual U.S. citizens. They may be naturalized, first of all. And they all derive from those nations. And it's like, um, that's just so bizarre. <laughs> like, you know, it's like someone saying, you know, um, yeah, we want to go into Iraq. So we're going to get, you know, uh, Billy Bob from Arkansas to learn Arabic and go. Yeah, that'd be great. But can Billy Bob blend in is the question, right? So there they decide, well, we're going to recruit someone that's an Iraqi, you know, refugee or um, from parents that migrated from Iraq and we're going to train him. And it's like, no, you can't do that because his parents that migrated from Iraq maintain the Ira- Iraqi culture and norms. And it is way more hyper intensified and embedded like Greeks in the United States know more about Greek history than Greeks in Greece. Like there was like a survey. Well, like, there's no Greek in the United States of America, that's a first, second generation from migrants that doesn't know when, uh, you know, what um, March 25th stands for. Yet if you go now to Greece and ask Greek people that go to Greek school, that's it. And you're like, hey, why do we have a parade on March 25th? What is it about? Oh, I think it's the day we said no. They don't even know history. They don't even know what Independence Day is. This is what I'm trying to say. It's more amplified. When you're a migrant from another country, it's more amplified here. Like for me, you know, my parents were both migrants. But one thing they did, and that's probably because my father came here at a very young age and took advantage of what the United States had to offer him. Uh, they were more pro-America. Yet, let's not be... <laughs> I had a church bus pick me up every day after school and drive me to the church where I would learn Greek. I would learn, you know, uh, the scriptures in Greek, ancient Greek, and uh, what you would call Catharevison Greek. I would speak Greek, talk Greek, get punished in Greek. The nuns really had a field day with me. I was not a very, you know... um a very obedient child, learn how to cook Greek, uh, participate in all the activities, you know, so it was deeply drilled into me, but my parents were pro-America. So that was where the difference was. It was like, you're so lucky you're in this country that you're an American citizen. This would be reinforced. And that's up to the parents. But a lot of people that come here as migrants come for a better opportunity. But for some reason, if they're not, um, if they don't see opportunity like directly and they just get a job or whatever and they don't become entrepreneurs, um, they long to go back to their nation. So they, um, 
convey that to their children. I can't explain it any other way. So it's very, very difficult. So you know what you need to look for? You need to look for your average Sally and Callie, you know, or, you know, Denise from Chicago that may have features that can blend in in Iraq rather than invest millions of dollars in training in someone that may have their core uh, lying in other loyalties. That's the problem. And this is the problem with the Vinman brothers. Remember his twin? The twin is important. And it seems like everybody keeps omitting it for some reason, which makes it even more intriguing. It's like, why is nobody talking about it? It's just so incredible. So having spoken on that on the Ukraine, I wanted to say I did put out an explosive article over the weekend that I'm going to talk about when it's more relevant and reference it. For those of you um, that haven't seen it, um, you know, Yovanovitch's name popped up uh, during some bazaar, like on Saturday, it was so busy in the Ukraine, like they arrested this high level leader, you know, ISIS leader, uh, some head of this huge bank in uh, the Ukraine was kidnapped in front of a kid. And then the government came out later saying, oh, he wasn't kidnapped. We just detained him. And it's like, yeah, black vans come and put hoods over you and slam you in there. Uh, that's totally normal. That's how you detain someone. <laughs> But it was bizarre. And then during the press conference that they were having, because people found out about the ISIS guy, people were throwing out names like Shoshani. And I'm like, well, which Shoshani? Because there's so many all Shoshanis, right? Uh, it's all Bar Shoshani, all this Shoshani, which Shoshani? And they talk about a Shoshani that was taken out in Georgia at an apartment. And someone was like, you know, and that apartment, by the way, was prepaid rent by the U.S. Embassy in Armenia under the name of some person named Yovanovitch. And she was the ambassador then. So you have to think, why is the U.S. Embassy from Armenia prepaying rent for an apartment in Georgia that is housing all these ISIS militants? And one of them exploded themselves and two were detained. Bizarre. And it just gets even crazier. So whatever's going on in the Ukraine must be really, really nefarious. I'll see you all right after this break. Welcome back, everyone, uh, to the Tory Says Show. Um, we are now shifting gears from the Ukraine back to Epstein. Now, I reported to you a couple days ago that uh, the uh, guards for Epstein are going to be charged, uh, more so because they, like, falsified federal records, you know, by saying that they checked on him when they didn't, um, which is a big deal. We've got the Epstein judge. Oh, they were actually arrested and, you know, and charged, so... I'll have an article about that, but we already knew what the charges were going to be, and that was reported today. But today, we found, um, I found an article written by the True Pundit about um, an actual victim, a victim, a child victim, um, that was victim to sexual assault and satanic rituals on a yacht by Bill Clinton. So what I'm going to do is I haven't heard this yet. And, you know, because the way I like to 
have my show with you guys is to experience things together, especially when they're breaking. So uh, the late Jen Moore was the one that was bringing this up. And here we have the video that you can hear of this victim's allegation publicly put forward against Clinton. Take a listen. Oh, gosh, darn it. That would have been nice to hear. It has the child, well, uh, older um, in age, where the, the, the child is actually describing these satanic rituals. And this call all comes on the heels of um, Adam Schiff claiming that Twitter needs to be on alert for uh, these deep fakes, which means that he is anticipating that video evidence uh, may be coming out soon um, in regards to him. And that's something we saw circulate about some dressing up like an Egyptian and uh, and uh, participating in like these insane um, satanic type rituals. So that is concerning in itself, uh, at the very least. So uh, what we um, realize is that this Pizzagate stuff, this satanic constant abuse of children is an actual real thing. And it's bizarre and it drives me insane to not understand how people can't see this, why the media isn't reporting on this. Why aren't they telling the people what they hear, what they see? Because so many people go out to the media to expose, you know, expose things kind of like my article on um, proof that auditing uh, the election results can't be done. You know, that they're being fixed. And if they're being fixed, we can't prove they're being fixed. And if they're not being fixed, we still can't prove that they're not being fixed. Like these are things that people are claiming no one's doing their job. No one is doing their job, you know, talking about crimes against children. We're all being distracted with other things. And that would be life, right? We're all distracted with life. Life gets a hold of us. And that's it. We can't function because life happens. That's basically why we, all of this is happening under our noses because life, because you're busy trying to put food on the table. You're busy trying to pay the bills. You're busy trying to pay the rent and the avenues that are congesting your senses are inputting whatever information they want you to, to digest and to accept as fact. And it has been showcased clearly now that this is not the case. It has been showcased that they clearly parse through the information and provide only what you are entitled according to their needs, their views to know. Right. Uh, the news is not objective. It is subjective to their interests and th- their who are they? That's the question. Who are they? You know, everybody keeps thinking, oh, George Soros. George Soros is a nobody. He's the front guy for them. Who is them is the question. That is a question everybody should be asking. Who is really in charge? Who is really in charge? That is what's incredible, that they're not 
being truthful with you. They're not telling you what is to come. You know, this whole, the president was poisoned. Wasn't he poisoned? Attempts on his life happen every single day. I am you know, from the minute he wakes up to the minute he goes to sleep, there is always someone out there lurking in a corner trying to get him Just because so of what he's doing. We're on the same page. Okay, here's the interview, guys. What I plan on doing is I contact the FBI, right? Yeah. If I can't find anybody okay, listen. worth the shit in the FBI, I'm going to try somebody at Homeland Security to come and talk to you. <clears throat> in the interim, I'm going to work on this video. The parts that I like, I'm going to cut up and put in one area, right? And then if they don't do anything with the story, with you, I'm going to do a story. We're not going to do anything right away because I want to give these guys an opportunity to talk to you. And if they talk to you, that's a story, too, that they're talking to you, and this is what happened to you. If they're not talking to you, then that's a story as well. They're not talking to you, but this is what happened to you. But, if you know, I just want, to, want you to know that when we do a story, we'll have your name and everything. And I'm not interested in doing something any other way when it comes to this, because I think that it's the best way for you to start putting blocks back on top of this. And if I can help you in any way, I will. I don't know how I can help you or, you know, and if I can do anything for you, I'm happy to try to help. Before I was taken up to the top of the boat, I was in a cabin on the outside of the boat being prostituted by my great uncle. And I was led to believe that there were several other young boys in the adjacent rooms that are going to be taken to the top of the boat one at a time, starting with me. How old are you? Eight years old. So you were eight years old and all this stuff happened. When you first got on the... This is like a yacht situation. Yeah, yeah, it's like a luxury cruise ship. When you first get on the ship, what do you think is going to happen? You all know, or...? I've I was just not aware. I It started this activity in my life when I was three or four years old, if not earlier. So right. I just didn't question where I was or what had happened to me any of these times. Let's go back to what you said about being prostituted. What happened? Well, I was put in the room and... For most of the time that I was in the room, my great uncle was standing outside the door, uh, taking people's money and letting them in. And then when he left, his cousin was left with me. I'm not sure if his cousin was alone outside the door at any point, but he was left alone with me on one of the lower decks of the boat while my uncle went to the top. So people would just come in and say, you're eight years old, so take advantage of you? Yeah. What happens? Um, well, it's hard to talk about, but... Well, there were two beds in the room, and I remember 
being on one of them at first. And then I remember a couple of, I remember at least three people that came in the room. And the last person to come in the room, the, the people who came in beforehand, it was weird, like you would expect. Like, it was, like, you were like right. Yeah. You are right. These are men coming in? Yeah. And at some point, all this happened on one yacht trip, or there were subsequent yacht trips? This is this one event. This is one event. Yeah. Okay. So then at some point, you are sexually assaulted by Bill Clinton? Yeah. Well, what happens with that? Well, there's a whole sequence of events leading up to when I was raped by him. Okay, so just feel comfortable to just talk. If you want to lead up to it, that's fine. Well, there was an incredibly violent display going on, and I don't want to talk too much about that Good. right now, but before I was raped by Bill Clinton, my uncle held me up over his head, and his accomplice walked up and slashed across the bottom of my feet with a scimitar and collected the blood in a chalice dish with us and he took a sip from it and then walked away through the crowd after my uncle got bored or whatever he held me up and tried to get Bill Clinton's attention Bill Clinton turned around and looks like he gave us look like what am I going to do? I have to do it. Yeah. Well, it's not a room. This is the top deck of the boat. How many other kids your age were on it? I only saw two other kids my age and they were in different circumstances. Meaning they weren't in as much danger or they were in more danger or equal danger? On top of the boat. The only other child was a young girl. On, I remember there being a young girl on one of the four podiums. There were four podiums like this, and then the one in the middle of the pedestal. And there might have been, uh, I think there was a teenage girl on one of them too, but the youngest girl was I think six years old. And I was I was the only one. You were in a more dire situation, obviously, than they were. Yeah. yeah. Now, what happens? They, why? Why did they pick you? They they parade you around or something, and they they choose the kids. Is that how it happened? They chose me years before. They chose my family. And when I was born, I had—I was born head first with the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck, with no heartbeat and no breath. They picked me because they thought that I was going to be just a failure. It is—it is, it is shock and awe. You need to know what else happened.
I'm ready. Okay. And then when I was taken into the ballroom, these people were marched diagonally through the room from one entrance up the other to get to the top of the boat, and they were all... All right, guys. So you can go to True Pundit and watch the rest. So what I'm going to tell you is testimony I had from someone that explained something similar that goes on in the state of North Dakota that died. Well, he was executed by a police officer um, just last, you know, in, in, in 2018, um, which is pretty interesting. And he described... Uh, the same thing. I can tell you that that young man described the first day he was taken and forced to participate in such events. And this happens in every single state. Don't get me wrong. This uh, testimony is from a boy. And you know what they do? They're like, well, you know, they're drug addicts. Uh, you know, they're runaways. They have problems. Of course they have problems. Could you imagine being 10 years old and forced to perform fellatio on, on, you know, on your fire chief, for example? Could you imagine that? And they tell you how they're going to make your family suffer if you say anything. But if you're a good boy... You get all these things like money and they give you drugs and they get you into drugs at a young age. And, you know, for some reason you keep getting arrested, but they let you off. You don't do one day in jail. And you think to yourself, no, that's totally normal. I would expect someone that's being raped and put through crazy rituals, crazy rituals that at the time they can't comprehend, but they consider as something normal that these elites and politicians participate in. It's incredible. The stories are out there and everyone just wants to look the other way. Unless it was their kid. But think about it. Think about the parents. Some of these kids had parents that either that either were oblivious to what was going on. And in the case of my witness that is was that was executed and you can look him up. His name is Danny Fuller, um, Daniel Fuller from Devil's Lake, North Dakota. I had been talking to this guy once a month since 2017, like January 2017. I had his details in 2016. I tried to approach him. I tried to, you know, let him know that I'm not going to turn him over to these people. This is their fear. And that he can speak with me. No one knew I was in contact with him. There was no way. I didn't even tell my best friends or people that worked on things with me, except for a few people. And one of them has passed. Uh, it was imperative that they keep my name out of it. And I I went public with it. I, I say it. And I told the victim's parents and they said, well, we knew he was talking to someone. We just didn't know who, and we don't have, you know, any of his phones, not even his burner phone, nothing. And the minute I found out about his death, the phone that, you know, communications that we had, I, I destroyed, uh, only to, you know, I don't know how someone can allow this to perpetuate in their own backyard and happen and fester and, and prey upon our children and not say a word 
Think this kid was victim to what Bill Clinton did. Think that ABC, you know, buried whatever evidence they have, eradicated whatever evidence they had, which was more on a high profile, uh, you know, sense. But think about ESPN and the and the and the evidence that they had against Bernie Fine and how this young man was being talked to by Bernie Fine's wife, you know, saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's my fault, too. But what did he do to you? Like, what has he done to you? Tell me. I'm so sorry. I knew. And I didn't help. She admitted to participating and screwing him up on that audio. And ESPN had that audio, that exclusive audio in 2003. And you know what? They didn't want to run the story. They didn't want to run the story because, you know, ESPN and CAA, you know, sponsors, advertising, it's biting the hand that feeds you. Because remember, Bernie Fine, part of Syracuse, blah, blah, blah. We need the money. Instead, he could have had the morality Right. That little speck of humanity inside of him, Mark Schwartz, the reporter from ESPN, to randomly drop it off at a police station. Come on with like a note that didn't have prints and tell someone just drop it a lot of places. There's bound to be one police officer, one investigator, one person that will be like, oh, my gosh, this is this is disgusting. This shouldn't be happening. We should do something because. These are human beings and nonetheless, innocent children that have their innocence stolen from them. And then they're used as tools. I mean, my, you know, Danny was not only used, but when he aged out and he was no longer appeasing, he was the one that was trafficking the children he was the one that was going on to the reservations and taking the infants from the moms that would rent out their babies for drugs to take back to these farms, you know, for these parties and rituals. Some of these babies never returned to. I mean, this is a systemic problem because humans are one of the most high priced commodities. And I can't stress that enough. I mean, I've, uh, you know, told the FBI, I've put forward the information I have, and, you know, I've made it clear of who my witness, you know, pointed out as participators, who his owners were. Try to comprehend the concept of a child, knowing that they're owned by someone that can do as they please. One of these politicians happened to marry someone with kids. And that person filed for divorce when that politician was caught assailing one of the children. That wasn't his. But, you know, the divorce was filed in another county and he did all the filing. She got nothing out of it. You know, just let's go and was left alone. You know, and it makes me think like, no offense, right? I'm not in anybody's position. I can't criticize because everyone's problems are responded to differently, right? And I shouldn't be the one to talk or wave my finger because in my life, I have seen a lot of things that I just was like, okay, I'm just going to watch this. I'm going to remember this. And at some point I can bring this up and get justice. Because if I bring it up now, I may not be here in five minutes, right? There's many times that all of you have been in predicaments like that. And we excuse the fact of uh, self-survival for it. Um, but I guess, you know, maybe as the years go on, I'm like, no, that goes to the wind. It's not about self-survival. It's about ensuring that we protect those that can't protect themselves.
Uh, I think that is something of an innate quality uh, that makes us as human as we are. And so this is something that I cannot wrap my mind around. Okay. I can't wrap my mind around any of this because evil and the actions of evil and actions like this, I can't relate to, I guess maybe because I'm too compassionate. I cannot relate to it. Like I, like if you see someone that commits murder, right? There's always an explanation and a motivator. You never act without gaining something, right? Uh, so I killed that guy because, you know, I just didn't like him or, you know, he, you know, uh, had a, an affair with my wife or he stole my parking spot. No matter how dumb it is, you know, in their mind, that was okay. The thing about these evil, nefarious networks of child abuse and satanic rituals that I don't understand is what do they gain? And because that component is extremely unknown and you can only speculate, it makes it even more difficult to digest. Because if you were to say, hey, every time they have uh, sex with a child, they get a gold coin, you'd be like, all right, now I get the motivation. But what do they get out of it? Because I can't fathom being satisfied in having any sexual interaction with a child. Infants at that too. So what is, what is it that they receive, you know? And I think it's because, you know, some people will say, well, evil doesn't have reasoning. It's just evil. And that doesn't make sense because the one thing that we know is that the creator that put us here gave us free will. And with that free will, there is good and evil and without evil being present. And I had this conversation with a great person last night without evil present, you can't see good. And without good present, you can't compare it to, you know, identify evil. So they go hand in hand. But when you're consumed with such evil, right, and there's like not even a speck of good, kind of like Schiff, right, and you have no respect, you're not apologetic, you're just arrogant and evil, what is your motivator? Like, what do you get because do you get off on people not liking you, off on making people scared? And when you get off, what is that? Is that a, like a chemical reaction? Do you see where I'm getting with this? This is why I don't understand this. And uh, I can't um, digest it per se, even though I acknowledge it. So imagine for me that acknowledges this, that I have firsthand thing I can't digest. Imagine millions upon millions of Americans, let alone globally. How do they digest things like this? How do you open someone's eyes and say, look, just this is it. And you're trying to process it in your brain and say, well, why is it like this? What is the purpose? And this is in all nefarious acts. In the next hour, I will be breaking down and I already reached, uh, I already tweeted out my article on this election fraud. And in this piece, I have the same question. How has this been going on and why hasn't this been examined? Don't we have cybersecurity? Don't we have people sitting in Arlington, Virginia, getting paid top federal tax dollars to ensure that they protect us? And it's not about hacking. It's about allowing the conditions to have our vote, the most important right we have, manipulated
Real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I am your host, Tori. So in this hour, we're going to talk about the most important thing you and I have, which is your vote. And what I'm going to draw your attention to is some news that came out yesterday out of Louisiana in Baton Rouge, where... You know, we saw these funny elections happen again, the same number of patterns on the front end, the same flip at the end of the count. Right. And whoa, the chief technology officer for the state of Louisiana, his house caught on fire. OK, his house caught on fire as he was working to counter a ransomware attack on the Louisiana state government computers and its network on Monday. Wait a minute. What? So the day before the elections, his house caught fire Um while he was working, like, when did the fire happen? This is so bizarre. I'm trying to figure this out. So uh, um, the fire, they say, happened around 4 p.m. So that the fire happened yesterday. But I guess he was still working on ransomware attacks that were against the Louisiana state um, computers and networks from Monday. You mean like right before the elections? It's pretty bizarre, right? Just like before the elections, like that's or after the elections um, as they're calculating because, you know, they don't finalize so way later. Anyway, so this guy's name is Richard House. He's the CIO, Chief Information Officer for Louisiana. And um, basically, he's in charge of all the IT infrastructure, like the, the computers, the networking for the whole state. Um, his house caught fire, which is like really bizarre. Uh, but firefighters are, are claiming already that it's not intentional. You know, they just know this, right? They're just claiming it seems unintentional. Now, Louisiana, you didn't hear me say a lot because I wasn't personally um, a victim or an immediate family member, a victim of uh, fraud, but I was watching everything. Um, and by watching everything is watching the way the numbers flip, watching the patterns and just ticking times to see it. I wasn't talking a lot about it because during that time uh, from the time that um I kind of delved into the more back end thing because I couldn't understand. Like we understand on the front end, um, like from the government and how they added in Kentucky 175,000 voters, made them active again. You know, uh, non-U.S. citizens being active, people voting on their behalf, crazy amounts of absentee ballots being shuffled around. You know, I was more focused on the numbers. Because for me, like I said, it's all about patterns, okay? It's all about patterns. So even though we had serious fraud concerns face value, you know, during these elections, uh, the concern for me, like I said in my article, was the fact that there was one guy who supposedly has tons of money coming from really rich people, really rich people, really, really rich people, Suddenly buys before the uh, 28 to 2008 elections, the um, network, the company that runs all the networks for county clerks, installs, accesses, maintains, etc. And then right before the 2012 elections, that same guy 
purchases outright at 100% Harp Enterprises. Harp Enterprises, a private company that provides equipment, prints ballots, right? Provides scanners to scan the ballots, provides e-voting machines that are all programmed and created by Hart Inner Civic in Texas, which, by the way, Tag Romney, Mitt Romney's son, is a huge and massive investor that jumped in in 2011. I wonder what happened in 2012 that Mitt Romney would be so interested in. So most of these electronic uh, uh, election machines, uh, ballot machines, scanners, run Hart Inner Civic software. And I'll tell you why. It's because they own the patent to it. Okay, so no matter what the company is made, no matter what investment VC capital company, which is filled, if you look at this, with cronies, foreign cronies linked with congresspersons and senators cronies, right? They all run the same software. But here's the thing. How do they tally? See, they, they, they collect the information, but who does the tallying? Ah, the tallying goes to a specialist company, kind of like maybe Smartmatic or Seidel, Skittle, whatever you want to call it. I'll go with Seidel because everybody wants to call it Seidel, but it is, for me, it's Skittle. So let's talk about Seidel for a second. Seidel is a foreign company. Okay, that's number one. Uh, it's based in Europe. It's massive. It's actually centered supposedly in Barcelona. It was a brainchild of a, you know, Spaniard. And, uh, it's a premise, um, in regards to elections because from what Millie Weaver has been digging up, uh, they're involved in a lot of stuff. Like I found some agreements with Facebook and I'm like, oh, that probably is why when people were walking into elections in Germany and they were really pissed off because they were getting alerts on Facebook. Hey, it looks like you're close to a voting center. Did you vote? And it's like, dude, why are you tracking me? You know, they were like really upset. And that's a cooperation they have with Seidel. That's creepy, right? Uh, because then if they run algorithms, they'll know what you're most likely going to vote for so they can fix the election even better. I digress. Let's focus on their programming. So here's what I discovered, and it's not a, a new discovery, actually. Uh, as I was learning and researching, uh, this has actually been determined by the experts, because I'm no expert. I'm not an expert. Um, I dabble in code. I dabble in cryptography for stuff that I do for myself. Uh, I don't do that for a living. That's not my job. You know, my day job is medical research and interpreting and, you know, obviously investigative journalism, you know, that, which is funded by my day job. <laughs> so basically, I do nothing of this in a formal capacity. But I'm really good at learning, right? And I'm really good at getting to the bottom of things. And, and you know, I was just really, really upset that I'm looking at a pattern and I can't figure out what the pattern is. For me, like I said, because that's like my superpower, right? That's why I'm good at math. That's why I'm good at languages. It's my superpower. I'm like that person. Have you ever seen on Facebook where they put like these pictures and it's like a bunch of O's and they're like, can you find the C? I find it instantly. Or if they give you like a color block thing and they're like, they all look the same, but they're like, one is not the same. I can pick that out like instantly. That's just my superpower. You know, just like some people have superpowers of being able to gut deer really easy. Um, <laughs> it's relevant to me. Okay, I know it's not relevant to what I'm saying, but it's relevant to me, um, what I just said. People just have superpowers. 
And for me, it was so aggravating. Could you imagine if you're like, if you have like the best palate in the world, right? You claim to have the best palate in the world. And when you taste sauce, you can taste every element, every everything. And then somebody gives you a spoonful of sauce and you have no idea what's in there. Suddenly you're obsessed, right? So that's what happened with me. I got obsessed. I was like, why can't I detect this pattern? I see the same pattern in Kentucky and the same pattern in Louisiana, and I can't find the commonality or why it's like this. And I'm like, all right, definitely a script. Okay. So what is the script scripting? Like, what is it doing? Still can't figure that out. I'm going to tell you that. So I'm a little bit salty about it. <laughs> um, but it is a redistribution. Some people call it fractional voting, right? Um, it is an algorithm. But the thing is, how do you prove it? How do you prove that they stole votes or they redistributed votes? Well, uh, the bottom line in this research, as I walk you through it, is that you can't prove they didn't, but you can't prove they did either. So basically, there's like there's a term in cryptography called a trapdoor. Okay, and I want you to imagine it. Um, what was that? Uh, Gavin gave me this example. It's like a magician. He said um, he likes magic. You know, he always goes back to these magician. And anytime I soundboard, he always goes back to these magician references. Um, so it's like. I give you a briefcase and it's packed with diamonds and an elephant. Okay. Something totally extraordinary. And, you know, I give it to you at the beginning of the show and then it's like, Oh, look, I'm dancing. I'm flipping. I'm doing all these tricks. Look here, there. Ooh, look at the card. Right. And then I'm like, now open up your briefcase and you will find diamonds and an elephant. And you're like, wow. And it's like, but I already knew there were diamonds and an elephant in there. Do you see what I'm trying to say? So this is exactly what's happening with our votes. And I'll explain that. I want you to remember that example with the briefcase with the diamond and the elephants that I already knew were in there, but I gave it to you. And then I distracted you and I did all these things. And then I was like, whoa, and what are you going to find? You're going to find what we've been doing all along. We found an elephant during my trick and diamond. So it's got to be in there. And it's like, whoa, look, it's there. You just proved your trick because you knew what the trick was. Right. So between um, setting the tone for the trick to the finalizing of the execution, whatever you did in between doesn't matter. You could prove that the trick is that. And then the thing is, what did you do in between to make it come to the conclusion that diamonds and elephants are in the end is basically your trick and it's private. So I'm not showing you. This is exactly the situation we have. So in my article, and I've pinned it to my profile on Twitter, I will be sharing it on Facebook after the show. Uh, for those of you that do Facebook, it's on loomer.com right now. And it's titled proof that auditing election machines cannot detect manipulation votes is really important. Because even if you audit these machines, you can't prove that they're manipulating votes, but you also can't prove that they're not. That's bizarre. They have like this blind spot, what's called a trap door in cryptography, which allows them to move the goalposts right, without being detected that they're moving the goalposts. It's 
uh, it's it's mathematically proven. So I kind of like went over a lot of papers, a lot of information, and I actually have scribbled math that I did on there where I was trying to repeat experiments with the mock code that they had from Skittle online, Seidel online, uh, from training stuff. I was working with a lot of, uh, you know, coders. I was, and, and, you know, hackers per se and cryptographers. And it was just bizarre how we have allowed, uh, a private company to tally our votes and not being able to verify it. There is a term in math and obviously in information technology called verifiability. So it's like if you say X is five, you've got to have a math problem that proves that X is five. So your previous problem that said X is five is verified, right? You match it with math, right? Um, it's, you know, it's like the equal sign. Like I, I told my kids when they were learning math when they were younger, think of a, a math uh, equation as a sentence. X plus Y equals five is a fact. Equal, that's a sentence. It's like a sentence. So the X and the Y have to add up to give you five. So whatever it is, if you have Y that's two, then you've just proven that X is three. I mean, okay, let me not, let me just stop right there because not everyone's a mathematician. Um, I really struggled putting this out because I was trying to, uh, I, I hate it when people just report things and they don't tell you why they're reporting them. So I really tried my best, um, to make this more, um, easier to digest. So I think the bottom line is the fact that we can't prove fraud and can't prove there's no fraud, right? Um, and that comes down because there's no universal verifiability. Basically, we can't verify that the votes, the votes that were actually cast and counted, um, that there's integrity there and that the vote is verifiable. Meaning I, uh, you know, 20 people voted for Trump, 20 people voted for Hillary, um, and then through the process that they have, which I'll walk you through, in the end, you can't prove that 20 were for Trump and 20 were for Hillary um, because you didn't see it. And I'll tell you why. So I actually created a little diagram myself um, from the information that I gathered from what was available to me publicly about CIDL, the voting systems, about Harp Enterprises and Heart Inner Civic. Like, you know, I've been kind of like on the down low, like really upset about this because I was like really, really trying to like fiddle, fiddle out. And, um, you know, how... The voting cards, you know, the little card things, the ballots, the ballot boxes, how they're counted, how the e-voting is done. Like I've sketched it out to you guys in my own way so you understand front end and back end. And it's like you just need to know that there's two sides. There's the ones that are done in the United States through Harp Enterprises, which is like collecting all the ballots, right? And then it gets pushed over to another system, which is run by CIDL, which is based out of the United States where the process goes. So let's pretend Tori walks into the voter booth in Kentucky and I drop my vote, right, which has been organized, um, which is 
collecting and driving the collection of all these. So it takes them but drives the collection by something called the administration portal. And the whistleblower was kind enough to give me those audit logs that demonstrate the activities of the administration portal. The administration portal is Harp Enterprises. So the whistleblower literally gave me logs. So I was able to see this live in front of my eyes. So through these logs, I noticed that, yes, they push the voting cards, the ballots, the absentee, all that information. They push it um, across the way to CIDL, um into a stage that's called configuration of data, right? That's where they take everything. Just They just bring it. And now, there was some weird step that I saw with Hartner Civic, something that in, in um, coding you know, or math terms, it's called an or proof, either or proof. It's like a checking yourself, which was a little bit bizarre. And that was when all these votes came in from there, they would actually go back to Harp Enterprises through Hart Inner Civic and processed almost as if they pre-tallied all those votes and matched it with the online voting system. Okay, I don't know what's happening there because I don't have access to the source code. And to be honest with you, if I did, I probably wouldn't be able to follow it all. But so basically they're comparing the e-voting stuff with the hard paper ballots that have been scanned stuff. And then all of it from the configuration and then from the online voting channel all go into this phase called cleansing. So that's basically what it is. We've got the tangible ballots and then the software ballots, but the e-voting ballots also have information from the hard ballots too, which is bizarre. And I, and that's called an or proof. It's like if, and, or this, then, you know, kind of just so you understand a little bit of how computers talk. Um, Cause they are binary. So, so the first stage is, is that they get all these, they configure it and this configuration is parsing it and, um, uh, kind of sorting it absentee this, and it actually prints a log, right? But the log doesn't tell you what the votes are. It just tells you how many it got. And I saw that that process was actually done on the front end too with Harp Enterprises. So that was really bizarre. So anyway, they go into like this cleansing phase where votes are cleansed. They're separated. This is invalid. This is valid. So maybe someone marked something wrong or maybe it wasn't marked or whatever. I don't know what parameters uh, they themselves insert, but that's the stage where they separate them into two groups. Now, those cleanse ballots then go into the next phase. And at that phase, Seidel re-encrypts the encrypted data they got to something they want. Nobody knows the key except for Seidel. They won't show you their encryption at all. It's proprietary. Too bad. So this phase is shuffling ballots, mixing them. Picture a bag of Scrabble tiles and you're moving it around. That's basically what they do to all your votes. And during this mixing phase is where you can swap a vote for some other vote. And uh, that is the place that someone, if they wanted to hack and change the stuff, that they would go to hack that specific area so that that way they could change the votes. Now, I have to tell you that from researchers around the world that have done case studies in Switzerland, Australia, Ukraine, and the United Kingdom, found that they didn't have any security risks. So that's a good thing. 
that their security was pretty good. It was not really hackable. It was pretty spot on. Commending them for that. But here's what happens. They're mixing and doing these votes. And at that point, anybody can swap whatever vote. So if, uh, you know, you cast a vote for, 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 for Joe and, you know, the administrator, Harp Enterprises or whoever funds Harp Enterprises or whoever pays, you know, Harp Enterprises or whoever may be dropping a couple million dollars on some coder uh, on the CIDL side or maybe whoever actually owns and funds ultimately uh, companies like CIDL uh, may say, hey, we don't want Joe to win. So can you make sure that Joe doesn't win? And that's where votes can be changed. And here's the thing. They can be changed and you can't see it. And you're going to be like, of course we can. We could see the source code. Well, yes, if they give you the source code, which they won't. But what they will give you is proof that they didn't do anything wrong. And I'll, sh- and I'll walk you through. This is how it's bizarre. So let's first acknowledge the front end, back end. Front end is you're at the ballot box and then there's these people that Harp Enterprises trained and paid hotels for and, you know, told how you're going to put votes for dead people, how not, you know, the directions, whatever they want to say, nefarious or not. Okay. And so in the front end, here's where we do have a problem. And that's the picture of the article that I put barcodes. I mean, uh, you can't read barcode, can you? Because barcodes are just encoded things. So, Harp Enterprises prints out all the ballots, absentee and the ones that you use to scan in the machine. How do you know that every vote you circle for Joe isn't really, when it reads through the computer, going to schmo? You can't because they print the ballots and they program the machines. So that's number one. Now, there's a way to fix that. That can be remedied by just bringing a third-party person and dropping ballots at all their machines, you know, every hour on the hour to make sure that, randomly, to make sure that they're not running a strike. Because remember, these voting machines are also linked up to a network. So as that network is connected, it can switch on or off the script to read the ballot as they want. It can read just the circles or it can read the barcode within the printed ink. Sneaky, but happens. This is why we need to go back to paper ballot. Do you see what I'm saying? There's so many loopholes here. It's ridiculous because if I owned a machine and I wanted to become president of you know my PTA, right, and I printed the ballots, the ink on the ballots would have a subtle code that would be read by a program on the scanner that you wouldn't even know about that would trigger it to say, oh, did you give Jenny a vote and not me? Well, that ballot will recognize you gave it to Jenny. So every time Jenny gets three votes, one will be flipped for me. That is how I program the scanner. Are you getting it? So that's the one thing. Another thing is the e-voting machines. Problem is, you know, you've seen it on TV where people are clicking one person and it's going to the other person, right? Scripts being run. How do we do it? Inspection by a third party. But I say again, the minute they see someone coming to inspect it, they can switch that off because it's piped up to the network. And it's not like the guy that's going to come and test it is going to have access to the network to see them switch off scripts. Hmm? 
Okay. This is where blind trust is coming in, which is bizarre. So then we have, you know, the heart inner civic software and Seidel working together. This is where you can see piggyback scripts on export. So it's like, you know how I said that all those votes are going back to heart inner civic and they're processed or maybe just stored so they can see. So all these hard ballots are kind of kicked back, which was a really weird thing. It, it doesn't make any sense why you would have an or proof there, but it's going back to heart inner civic and then it's just moving out online voting. Super bizarre. But that can actually be used um, as um, I would say a predeterminant. So that way, when they get to the mixing phase, they know what they need to mitigate to get the results they want. That sounds so complicated. I mean, saying it confused me. So I can't even imagine this someone that's not following. So. In, in my article, I actually made a graphic walking you through the process and put like hazards and skeleton faces of where it's like all damaged and stuff, um, between the heart and cital voting system and how it works or how I saw it works from the math and the logs and, you know, just doing my homework. And I actually corroborated with a lot of people around the world. And you know what, what's really annoying before I break? Um, it's like, I, this isn't my job. There's a guy right now sitting in Arlington getting, you know, 250000 a year whose job is this, right? And so for 10 years, at least 10 years, this has been going on and no one's done anything about it to remedy it because there is a remedy, right? Um, if you really want to keep e-voting, I just say scrap the whole thing because there's always going to be new ways around the system. But like, what are they doing? Like, seriously, it took me a week to do this. You've got 10 years under your belt sitting there on your desk getting paid with our hard-earned federal tax dollars, and you haven't figured it out, but I did? Come on, man. And I'm not even that smart. That's your domain. Do you see where I'm a little bit salty, guys? I mean, all of us should be salty right now. Like, why is this investigative journalist that's not a cryptographer, not really a coder, just like, you know, guess likes to learn stuff, right? puts it all together. And the thing is, I didn't even discover something new. This has already been discovered in other in other countries. The latest paper was written in March 2019. I mean, what are they doing down there in cyber? Seriously. Our vote is the most important thing, which leads one to speculate, are they just complacent and letting it happen? All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. So before I delve into like the stuff that you're going to be like, what, how is this happening? I just wanted to say I received a DM with what someone believed was the IG's report, but it was a report. And I think, and I'm like super smiling, what have I been talking about for months? Like obviously when I report something, unlike ESPN and ABC, or if I come up with an idea and I'm like, yo, someone needs to pay attention to this. Yo, here's what my finding are or like I told you earlier in the show didn't I say it that we're like getting these confidential sources and people that we're hiring in the wrong place well here it is audit of the Federal Bureau of Investigation Management of its confidential human source validation processes finally and I sent uh, you know letters over to Horowitz I think it was like in February where I was like look I'm really pissed off like they've manufactured these 302s like I came out and said it and it's like uh, how do you know they manufactured Manufactured it. <laughs> uh, nobody knows that. I mean, we haven't even determined that. How do you know? And it's like, I just know I'm a time traveler. Like, you know, maybe they dismiss it as something. 
<laughs> no, I didn't say that on the letter for sure. But what I did say was, is that we need to change the way we like, um, safeguard information, the way we hire people and how can you find how you can get confidential human sources correctly and how you can vet them. But not only that, more so my, my stuff was on the employees. And of course, if your employees suck, your, your process of hiring employees is definitely going to impact how you have your confidential human sources, which is like, mm, you know, how you curate them. It's like, like that. What was that? I totally forgot. Who was that entertainment industry guy that negotiated this meeting with the Russian lawyer? It's like, you know, where'd this tool come from and how is he a confidential source? I'm just saying. So this was just declassified and published. So I'm going to peruse through it, but it kind of feels good because I did bring that up in my thing, um, which was, you know, we, um, our confidential sources are critical for our national security. And uh, obviously what I'm going to talk about is the employees and how we hire them, um, which obviously impacts confidential human sources. Like that was actually the phrasing of my first paragraph. So I'm kind of excited. You know, I'm not saying that I set it off, but, you know, maybe um, they listen because that's the thing. Nobody's listening. The same thing here with the article I put out. Like, how do you tell the government that you've got a bunch of tools that are sitting there that are coders working for all these agencies and not one of them is checking to see, you know, if there's fraud? And here's the thing. The concept blows your mind. So in cryptography, this is where we're going to go into that second, second, you know, the back end side. So like I, in cryptography, there's a special term called a trapdoor. And this is the only concept out of everything you need to understand, uh, in relations to this. So like I said, all the votes go in, they get parsed, invalid, valid, and then they go into this mixing phase like the Scrabble bag, right? And that's where stuff can get had. So basically, Harp Enterprise, to do their due diligence, they're like, yo, hey, um, so Seidel, I need to know that you've, you know, taken the ciphertext, which is like encrypted stuff, right, from me. And you're re-encrypting it, um, but you're able to decrypt it with a key that I don't have, but they're also able to decrypt their original cipher tags with their key. Okay. Just both of them can decrypt their own end side. So then th- to offer, and, and that's actually done just so you know, this is actually done that they recrypt, re-encrypt the stuff because it provides a cloak of security to external threats, which is true. Okay, that is why they're impenetrable because your vote is ABC, Hart transfers it as XYZ, and Seidel says it's one, two, three. You see what I'm saying? So then the hacker doesn't even know if one is ballot A or if it's ballot B from the front end. You get what I'm saying? So this gives you security, but here's where you get this blind spot, complete blind spot to do whatever you want. So in order for that to be fair, I broke it down in an example. Let's say there are like three races. This is this is how they're moving the votes in this mixing and shuffling nefariously, how they can do it. Okay. And this is what the statistical data from the front end indicated. So we have three races, governor, attorney general, secretary of state. The powers that, you know, want um, Andy to be governor decide that during this trapdoor area, right? This gap of you can't see anything. They take away votes from Governor Matt and then they add them to the AG Democrat. 
right? And then they take votes from the Secretary of State Democrat, and then they add them to Andy, but then shuffle back some votes from that they took away from Governor Matt from the Secretary of State Democrat or the uh, Democrat of the other one. They're shuffling them around. So they're stealing votes from e- either or side. And I wrote a little math problem how they can discreetly do that and run it in a little script, right? And I put this little quote. I don't know, did Joseph really say this? It's not who votes that counts. It's who counts the votes. So hypothetically, the scripts shuffle the votes so they can get the desired result, basically. Um and this becomes even more apparent with more information that I gathered as to why we see this after, you know, the majority of the votes have counted. And you're like, what? It was like neck and neck. Yeah, it was neck and neck because they were shuffling. But why did it do that leap and swap in the end? Totally explained by math. So basically, um, Harp says, all right, you need to prove to me that the original votes I gave you are the same ones that you encrypted and, ta- and tally up. Right. Okay, Seidel, you're taking my stuff. You're you're coding it. And I don't know what it is, but you need to prove to me that your X, Y, Z ballot is my ABC, respectively. And so this is done in what, you know, without getting into a lot of detail um, by agreeing to um, certain generators, you know, like generating. Okay, think of that way um, to build together a commitment. So these generators are building this commitment, this wall that shows if this, then this. So then it's true. Right. Just think of it that way. So. Basically, you set a, a values. There's a set of values that both of them agree, Harp and Seidel, that are based on encrypted data, and they agree to it like in a number-wise fashion. So, in essence, you Harp Enterprises won't be able to see what Seidel has, you know, um, under the the blanket, but you can see the shape of it, and so it validates that that's a ballot. Make sense? And because of the shape of it or the blanket that's on top that you can't see, it tells you that that was a Andy Brashear vote. And then the other one tells you that that was this. It kind of gives you a hint that, yeah, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. So uh, I I actually inserted a piece of code that the University of Melbourne actually ran um, to prove because they actually had access to the systems on the uh, Switzerland government side. And this is what Seidel is running. And they also excuse as to why they're doing it like this. Just get me, just hear me out because they're building a crypto library and they didn't want to get too specific. What? So anyway, they actually said that on the record. So what happens is at this point, when you agree that you're going to find these generators, you have to pick numbers, but it's like numbers are agreed upon, but they have to be random. Meaning like uh, say you're, say I tell you to pick two numbers, right? Um, and you decide, oh, I'm going to pick, you know, one and seven because that's my birthday, right? It's not my birthday, but I'm just saying, um, because you pick the number, I can most likely determine the relationship, right? So therefore I know the relationship between your numbers. So if those two is entrance and exit, right? One is the entrance, seven is the exit. Then I can manipulate anything in the corridor leading from entrance to exit. I'm trying to kind of make this more digestible. So what happens is, is that they're supposed to have random numbers and not know why they're related. So you can't map out from the entrance to the exit where you tally the vote, you know, where it comes out so that the computer is impartial. 
in the coding and in the way the shuffle and the mixing happens. Well, here's the thing. They actually ran a script. They run a script to generate random numbers and they know the relationship between those random numbers because all numbers can be related. So a computer's running this huge program and it's like, oh, number 256 and number 123. And they're related because of, I don't know, a tree somewhere in Argentina. I'm just saying whatever. The computer knows that. So how is it impartial, right? If you know both of the numbers relationship. It's very important because if you know the relationship between the two generators, you can manipulate the actual values. That's what a trap door is. So Seidel and Harp Enterprises, um, the way they work is that they generate a random number and generate generators from those random numbers. They already know the relationship is. And in cryptography, that means it fails. That means the proof to keep, uh, you know, integrity in the values in between these totally fails. So in essence, Seidel is free to see, access, and manipulate from both ends. And a trap door is literally what that's called. It's a crypto term that, des- that describes the state where a program knows the commitment parameters, knows like the goalpost, the entrance and exit. And they're, therefore, they're able to actually um, manipulate the value of the commitment, however, they like. So if you know the entrance and the exit, you're able to make the corridor smaller, larger, curvier, whatever, and nobody will be none the wiser. You're moving the goalposts and nobody can see. So it's kind of like Seidel can take all the votes, say like in the whole state of Kentucky, all the votes, including abs, except for the absentee ballots that fall in another carrot, all of them, electronic and paper ballots, right? They all come to a total of a thousand, right? In this case, because they know right? The relationship between these and they know the commitment parameters, right? They can take all thousand votes and distributing, uh, distribute them all among the races as they see fit to get the outcome they want. And that's something that was found in the Estonian uh, elections. So um, in the article, I put in the math to prove it. It's like simple algebra. It's algebra. I'm not going to say simple because some people will be like, dude, this is like totally Chinese. So it's simple math. And I got this um, math proof. And that's where I was like, you can probably see. I actually can see it on the article where you could see me scribbling and doing the math on the back page, too, because I was like I filled up like a whole notebook of math um, because I was trying to wrap my head around the concepts of cryptology, um, not the math itself. So I solved it to make sure that it makes sense. Um, so basically, it demonstrates the ability to actually move, you know, those goalposts and nobody can see it. So I actually wrote out, and this is something they did too, but a little bit different, how they would replace to shift votes uh, to give the vote to candidate three rather than candidate two. So how you can give a vote to to Matt in um, to to you take a vote from um, Andy and give it to Matt, and when Matt's you know calculation of candidate two comes out, it spits out Andy. So where you know, and that's done in like an interim for every three votes, you get one. For every one vote, you get half. This is how we redistribute. So 
it's it's also deletion of numbers. So if they knew that they only had like a million ballots and that's all they could report and, you know, to get the result they wanted, they needed 1.5 million. The algorithm would run with 1.5 million, but the end result would spit out only a million. It's like so easy to manipulate. This is how a vote could be garnered, slotted, you know, into like a really nice, neat math equation. And that's done during the mixing phase. And this is how you would replace or reallocate votes or what some people were calling fractional voting. Right. And this is why Hillary lost, because even though they had this program in. Right. They didn't have the ability to account for the immense amount of people they had. So the program had a problem in, um, you know, discharging. Now we had a lot of people vote during the presidential elections and that could also indicate that the program, when it ran, it actually ran the actual fake numbers rather than the real ones too. So that's a possibility. And you'd be like, well, how do you know it's a possibility? Well, I don't. And I don't know because I can't prove that they're committing fraud, nor can I prove that that they're not committing fraud. So I can't check them. That's the point. Because when you get to the decryption phase, and here's where I know they're running the script. This is where the proof is. In the final phase, before you know the public release of all these votes, right? From encrypted format, re-re-encrypted format from the mixing phase that Seidel has to plain text, right? Um, you know, and remember, they created a trap door because they knew the relationship of the randomness. So uh, you know, whoever is the mixer, Seidel, can collude with their vote company client, like Harp Enterprises, to, or, you know, people that are funding them, like, I don't know, Lord Malik, like George Soros, like Democracy Alliance, like Mitt Romney, I'm just saying names, you know, of investors. So they can actually tell them we need to make sure this happens. But here's the thing. At this stage of decryption, Seidel can decrypt the results, look at them, and if they don't like them, they can fabricate them. And you still can't catch them doing it, even at this phase. That's because you, the people, Clarity Systems, right? Clarity, that's another program that reports and puts it on TV or to the um, county clerks, right? They don't have the decryption key. So they rely solely on the fact that Seidel's being honest during this phase. Now, this method, when tested by those that were testing the integrity of Seidel systems around the world, indicated that a change or, or a manipulation of votes in the decryption phase would be evident if you see a significant difference in votes after about 86% of the total votes have been tallied. So basically, the reason that's done is because there's greater delay in reporting finalized numbers um, because it's at the end of the race, right, where it slowly goes and they're like, oh, yeah, we're done. We already counted the votes kind of thing. You know, but then it suddenly flips at the end, right? In close races, like we saw in Kentucky, like we saw in Louisiana. Well, here's what happened. That's where you flip the race. Because during the mixing phase, you have the script to reallocate. But say that script isn't enough to provide the outcome desired because so many people showed up. You had to delete votes. So you come to to the end where you've got a neck and neck race and they're tallying, you know, where the tallying of vote is happening, like at the 85 to 86 percent mark. And that's where you fix it. And there was a paper written how not to prove yourself pitfalls of the Fiat Shamir heuristic application to Helios, which is a study they did on the Helios program, which is a voting machine program uh, that they have in the United Kingdom. And 
clearly in this paper, it was stated zero knowledge of uh, zero knowledge proofs of knowledge allow a prover to convince a verifier that she holds information satisfying some desirable properties without revealing anything else. Now, I didn't write it in the article because it gets confusing, but it's something called like hashers. So it's a hash. So it's like you take parts of it like to inspect and you take certain parts that are important and you're like, look, see, I have all these important components. See, your math formula proves that I have these important components. So therefore I can't be cheating. Mm. That's basically it. So more simply put, it's that they can convince you with proof um, complementary to the generators they themselves in commitment know the relationship of and manipulate because they know the relationship. So they can generate a proof based on all the information they have. It's like the magician saying, look, I'm such a great magician. Open your briefcase. There are diamonds and elephants, but you already knew it was there. Yeah, well, you didn't know that when you held the briefcase. So, I mean, that's a little bit out there, but that's exactly the same magic trick here. So, In essence, the machines that have been counting our votes, there is no ability to detect the presence of fraud with this system in place. So if there's fraud, you can't see it. If there's no fraud, you still can't see it. So if after the decryption, for example, the people challenged it, right? The administrator, which would be Harp Enterprise, it would be like, you know, um, uh, hey, I need you to like prove and show me. Well, the administrator of that company or Seidel that know that there's a trapdoor and they know what the trapdoor is, meaning they know the generators, they know the commitments, and therefore they know the relationship. They could generate proof that would pass verification. And this was literally spelled out in the case study by the University of Melbourne just recently in March of 2019. So look, This isn't my forte. Like, if you ask me about medical stuff, man, I get journals sending me stuff all the time. I am up on it. Anything new in oncology, anything new in this, I've got alerts and I'm reading articles. So in the same essence, every single darn cryptographer, coder, cyber dude sitting in Arlington right now getting paid top dollar, right, is getting the same damn articles in their inbox, And obviously, I've seen this since March 2019. So why hasn't anyone said, well, wait a minute, don't we use those programs here? Let's check it out. Because it's our duty to protect the Americans. No one has. So the problem has been identified and therefore ignored. All the elections that we have had in our nation are simply utterly broken. Harpsidal is just one of the two coupled things of private companies around the nation that work together and have the same exact issue. If you actually review their training codes and some, you know, whistleblowers that have dropped like actual um, audit logs, dude, it seems like the state of Kentucky for some reason had like total blind trust in a group of companies that are foreign and domestic. Like, why haven't they challenged to test it? Why haven't they said, well, wait a minute, I'm asking you to prove to me that you did everything right and you're the only one that knows how to prove that, so I just have to accept it because you already know what's in the briefcase. You know what's in the briefcase, so you're going to provide me a math problem that leads me to what is in the briefcase. That's, that's not right. So one can only speculate. 
So is the Kentucky government that is allowing Harp Enterprises and CIDO contracts to happen complacent because, you know, they just trust Roger Baird and whoever backs him, like maybe, you know, Bob Babbage, Democracy Alliance, you know, things like that. So what is it? Who's funding them and why are they turning a blind eye to this blatant usurpation? Blatant. Switzerland, for example, when they found this problem, they actually determined, you know, they, that they had concerns that they couldn't defi- determine universal verifiability, meaning verifiability pretty much means that you're able to verify with math proof that votes have, have been manipulated. So, for example, they went in there, they legitly, like they literally manipulated votes based on the program that was running. So they had like an election and then they ran their own election. And they manipulated the votes by having, you know, hackers and cryptographers go in there and literally manipulate it. And when they manipulated the votes and on the other end, you know, the computer spit out a proof saying that it was verified. They were like, well, wait a minute. How'd that happen? And that's where they discovered that Seidel uses, knows what number generators and parameters are set. They know the commitments. They know the, 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 the numbers of the generators. Like they know everything so they can manipulate it basically. And that's how they determine that's what Seidel's been doing. It's be, it's created a trap door. And they said, unfortunately, the, the government of Switzerland actually listened to its people. Even though the company said, well, here's the proof. And you're like, yep, they verified that every vote was accounted for. It was done correctly because we saw the hash markers which are, you know, like the prominent things of importance that say it's so. But when the coders actually went in there and they legit manipulated the votes, they went in there during that time of mixing and manipulated the votes. They had no idea in the background that the computer would auto correct itself to not detect fraud, to be undetectable in fraud. There we go. So that's what is incredible. So Switzerland at that time, they were like, yo, we're not doing e-voting. It's done because we need to make sure that this can't happen again. So maybe you guys need to not randomly generate numbers for these, you know, commitments that you're doing um, with the script. So that way it's safer. I say, let's just get rid of it all. All of it. We don't need to make the most important thing that we have as citizens vulnerable to technological attacks. I mean, have you ever been to a casino? If you have, you've seen that the dealer always like when they deal, they're like, ooh, look at my hands, nothing here. And their sleeves are up and there's a camera right on top of them with a pit boss watching their every move so they don't screw up, steal or swap, you know, whatever, right? No matter how slight a hand fast they are, they're watching everything. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to reduce uh, the possibility of attacks and manipulations of our elections. Now, absentee ballots is a monster of its own. But think about it. This is already out there that Seidel is doing this. And based on the audit logs and the code that I had access to uh, from many states, past and present, they literally have this trap door. So basically, they've been fixing every single election since 2010. Redistribution, redistribution. So this is probably how people that you're like, how'd they win? Win. How'd Schiff get elected? He did. You know, and so my idea is, you know, obviously I hate it when people are like, well, this is a problem. You need to fix it. And it's like, all right, since you're so smart, give me a solution. And it's like, look, I'm not that smart. But my solution would be, hey, 
Why don't we have acrylic boxes sitting in a room? Nobody goes in and out. That's a, you know, if you're in there counting votes, you don't leave. There's like a lounge, porta potties, food. You stay there. Everybody watches you, everything on CCTV. And the only people that enter and exit from that room where the ballot boxes are and the ballot booths is the voter who outside of that room will have their ID checked. They will park their stuff in a temporary locker and walk in there with only the ballot and the pen. And they will go into the little private ballot booth, fill it out, walk over the acrylic and drop it. And then when it's all done, they'll compare. How many voter ballots did the front end get rid of? 20. Do you have 20 in your clear clear acrylic boxes? Yes. Now let's count over cameras. And that way we can check, check, check. That's the best way we can go forward. And this way... You know, there's no money interests. And, you know, obviously this is going to upset a lot of private, rich people that have invested a ton of money in this. But I think when it comes to voting, I mean, why reinvent the wheel, right? I'll see you all tomorrow. I wish you guys a great evening. God bless from all of us at Red State Talk Radio. And get on those phones and tell them to fix our vote.